0: Oh my goodness, I always, it's become a cliche. Every time I come out here, I go wow, 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 like I was not expecting anyone to show up. Uh, but, uh, but you're here, thank you for coming. This is a really special event, uh, in case you didn't know. And if that makes you nervous, now's the time to get out. <laughs> because this, this is such a special event, I have hardly any notes because I, I feel particularly unequal Uh, to the subject and the story uh, of my guest, Yeonmi. Typically, we frame the evening around a big question. Um, And this evening, though, I was so nonplussed by Yeonmi's story that I hardly know where to begin or what question uh, to ask. For those of you unfamiliar with Yeonmi, in a nutshell, uh, I will simply say that she and her mother uh, escaped North Korea and survived. It's an astonishing story. Uh, her first book, which came out a few years ago, I don't think we have copies of that here, but you can get copies, I believe, at Socratesinthecity.com. You must read that book. I wish that book were mandatory reading for every young American. I say that emphatically with the authority of my decades. <laughs> with, em- with, with, It is one story that when you read that story, you appreciate things in a way that you couldn't possibly have before. So tonight, uh, you and me will, will tell uh, much of that uh, story. Um, my uh, mother and father uh, have experienced something similar. Some of you in the room have. My mother escaped East Germany, okay? When Stalin took over you know Germ- uh, that part of Germany, she escaped when she was 17 years old. So I have lived with these stories of what it means to escape a totalitarian regime. And when your own mother uh, did that at age seventeen it it gives you a perspective, and I know i've said this before that your average American couldn't possibly have you couldn't possibly appreciate what it is that we have here because we've most of us uh, t- t- take it for granted and we're already on to denigrating it uh, and and the fact of the matter is that um, when you've come from a place that is as uh, dedicatedly against freedom uh, as North Korea uh, or as the former Soviet Union, it will, it will give you a perspective. And it's really valuable that we, uh, that we hear those stories because they're true. Um, uh, in, in terms of uh, details of the biography of Mi, she's way too young to have any resume for me to recite to you, except that I mentioned she escaped North Korea? Yeah, that pretty much says it all. Uh, and if that wasn't tough enough, she went to Columbia University, <laughs> and uh, which used to be in the Ivy League until ten minutes ago. Um, <laughs> they uh, no, it's. Uh, we'll talk about all of that. It really is a genuine privilege to have as my guest, Yunmi Park. Yunmi, please <laughs> stand. Well. How you doing?
1: I'm doing well actually.
0: You're doing well actually? Yeah, actually,
1: uh, yeah, I mean before I say this, I normally don't sound like this. <laughs> I have a coffee drop, like cough drop in my yeah. mouth. I had a flu two weeks ago. I'm not sick. I'm not completely sick. You had the flu? Uh, yes. But you need I... to get the
0: vaccine. <laughs> they have a vaccine, <laughs> very that. powerful vaccine. It could kill you, but if it doesn't kill you, it knocks out a lot of symptoms. <laughs> I really meant what I was saying about um, when I read your story, your, the, the first book is In Order to Live, so I, I'll show it here. Uh, in Order to Live, what year did you write this book?
1: 2014 to 2015.
0: 2014. Mm-hmm. So you were very, very young when you wrote the story, and this is the story of your escape from, from North Korea. Uh, I want us to talk about that, and then I want to get to your new book, uh, which is, is quite new, um, where you, you talk about your experience in America, uh, at Columbia among the cultural elites uh, of, uh, of the United States. So how do we start, uh, you and me? Your, your story is, in some ways, um, in some ways is very simple.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so t- tell us, what are your, earliest memories. I was very moved by some of your earliest memories and you're um it's, it's astonishing that you remember mm-hmm. when you were very very young uh, being with your sister alone uh, being hungry but how do you how do you begin a story like this?
1: I, I mean just sitting in this room is very surreal to me looking at these beautiful portraits of American heroes and in North Korea when you're born there Nobody's actually allowed to compete with our dear leader. So
0: Compete with our dear leader, you said.
1: Yeah, so in North Korea, actually, we don't have ad. We don't have advertisements.
0: You don't have art.
1: No advertisement.
0: And no advertisements.
1: Yes, so every room I see like this, the first thing, the thing that we see is a portraits of dictators. Every room is trains, school classrooms, household. In household, we have to find the finest wall we can find and put the portraits of dictators. And we have to guard that with our lives.
0: And when you say dictators, you're talking about the three, uh, now it's Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. his father, Kim Jong-il, and his father.
1: And the wife of Kim Jong-il, Kim the mother of Kim Jong-il, so the woman as well.
0: In, in the book, in both books, you describe it as a cult like a brainwashing cult. And it is, but it's, it's hard for us to believe, even reading the book, the level of, of how true this is, is it, it's, it's very difficult to grasp yeah. an entire society um, in which you are essentially commanded to worship a human being
1: mm-hmm.
0: whom you'll never will meet.
1: But for us, he's not a human being, he's a god, right? Like he doesn't go to the bathroom. <laughs> that was a real thing for North Koreans. And I literally believed that he had the power to read my thoughts even. So I was even afraid to think.
0: So, so in, in North Korea, the, the, the idea then is that these are, these are gods, you are to worship them, and life, revolves around that. What is the line that you use many times in the book that even the mice, your mother taught you that, even the mice and the birds can hear your thoughts?
1: So yeah, the very first thing that my mother told me when I was younger was don't even whisper because the birds and mice could hear me. And mice are everywhere in North Korea and birds are everywhere like that. It's in a way like, in a way, resembles a little bit like America right now where People cannot trust each other because you never know who is a spy. You know, there's a bag in North Korea. I'm saying you don't even trust your own back. There are cases where children report on their mothers, parents report on their children, and they tell us early on. You know, the most important thing that my teacher told me was it's not your biological father. He's your real father. He's your spiritual our leader. So. You know, in North Korea, nobody is a really, so we don't have word like friend. We don't have vocabulary friend. We have word for comrade. When you are comrade with your classmate, that's a very different relationship. You exist to serve the revolution, right? You are not there to make friends with each other. So like that, the concept of love, liberty, human rights, or even gay don't exist. So simply, we are not allowed to know what that means. In
0: 1984, George Orwell's book, he writes about this.
1: Double speak.
0: And he writes about how certain words will, th- th- they're stripped of meaning, so that you can be free of lice, you can be free of, you, you can, the, the word free is reduced to that kind of thing, but the concept of freedom is wiped out. But this is according to both your books, literally the case in North Korea, that you're not allowed to talk about anything uh, along the lines that, well, you're you're not allowed to talk about almost anything, it seems to me.
1: Yeah, it's like the most dangerous thing that you have in your body is your tongue. If I said one wrong word, that was going to kill up to eight generations of my family along with me. So in North Korea, the crimes, like, they separated two crimes. One is economic freedom, I mean crime, and one is political crime. Economic crime is like raping child, child, like murdering somebody, stealing somebody. You don't get, like, rape is not a crime in North Korea, you can do that.
0: Rape is not a crime?
1: Yeah, I mean, North Korean dictator himself has a pleasure squad. He has young girls from every elementary school get you know, drafted to Pyongyang, and they believe that having sex with the young kids is going to prolong their life. So like rape is an institutional thing in the country. But the real crime, the North Korean regime has has, is a political crime. Like in every middle of the night, the officials kick the door and come into your room. And then they, you know, the widest cloth like this, they swap the portraits on the edge. And if you find a little
0: dust. The portraits of the, of the, the dictator. I, I read this recently, I'm not, I'm not sure, I think it's at the end of your second book, but that was amazing to me. In other words, this is true, this is not just an idea, that they will come to your home, and if you have neglected the upkeep of the portrait, yes. if they find dust on the portrait, you can be taken away for this. You
1: get executed. And through generations of your family sent to prison camp. And this is a thing to understand, when you. End up in North Korean prison camp. It's the first thing you cannot do is ask why you're there. So I met a lot of defectors who escaped later. They were sent to prison camp when they're 80 years old till they're like 27. Till not, don't know. Till this moment, they don't know why they end up there. So so oftentimes, maybe their great grandfather, grandfather said something wrong, and then that discovered 30 years later and that's how you end up in a prison camp. But if you ask a guard why you are there, they execute you.
0: They execute you. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the beginning of your life. Um, it, it's amazing to me when you describe the personality of your father. Your father was obviously very intelligent. It seems obvious and very entrepreneurial and creative. And um, talk a little bit about what life was like when you were very, very young.
1: I mean, very, very young. It's like a, I mean, we don't have electricity. You know, we don't have like central heating. I remember being very cold. And I remember just feeling very hungry. And I don't remember seeing any color. So that's all I remember, like the, my dream as a young kid was having a bucket of bread, because I never thought that was impossible, right? How can a person have that much food? And that's just all oh, I remember every day, like dreaming of food. Like someday I was hoping, you know, maybe if there's, a, we don't know what God is in North Korea, but somebody in the sky might drop of you know, bread to me. Like that's all you think about.
0: You, you talk about going with your sister to find leaves from the trees and insects to eat.
1: Yeah. So I main like uh, my source of nutrition the summertime. In the fall is the drugs, I mean, grasshoppers in the harvesting time, the rice field. And in the August, and July, we catch dragonflies. And then the summer, before the summer, a lot of plants are not poisonous at the moment. And there are a lot like, soft, so we can eat a lot of tree, even leaves. But after May, a lot of them become poisonous, then we have to be very careful. And then right now actually is a March and April, and this is a time when I escaped. This is the season of death for North Koreans.
0: This was a big thing. Uh, in the book you say that spring is considered a season of death. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's the opposite. In most of the world, people think the spring, life is coming, it's beautiful, summer's coming. But for you, it was the season of death. Explain why that was.
1: So in the winter time, right, in the, in the fall, we might like gather like dried cabbage and a lot of, you know, just plants survive. And they eventually they run out through February. And March and April, if you go out, I don't know if you notice those things, plants are not long enough to eat and they are not there yet. So now it's like we're massive starvation begins from March to April.
0: And this was true, of course, in the, in the 90s when you were little, hmm. but it's true now.
1: Yeah, it's now it's worse actually during the pandemic. Kim Jong-un locked the country completely. So now the people started having a cannibalism. Over the last few years,
0: you um, you talk about your father um, doing something which I didn't think it was possible to do, but uh, that there was a, an active black market in the '90s um, because things were so bad. I guess I want to figure this out. You. Did China stop subsidizing North Korea in the 90s? Why did things get... I mean, things have been very, very bad for a very long time, but but it was even more difficult in the 90s. So a black market developed.
1: Right, so here we often say, you know, socialism only works until you out someone else's money, right? (laughs) So it was that case for North Koreans. Socialism kind of worked until the late 80s, because our economy was heavily subsidized by I mean Soviet Union and China, and the Soviet Union collapsed, right? So they stopped helping North Korea, and the regime could not find any more a subsidy for the people. And until that moment, we are socialist paradise. We have free healthcare, free education, free housing, free public ration. And then 90s, Kim Jong-il hear about the like, starvation, And then people are saying, what are you going to do? People are dying. And then he thought, actually, it's easy to do socialism when you have less people. It's easy to control people when they're less. So why don't you let them die? Mm -hmm. So he decided to keep only 10% population who are in capital. It's like Hunger Games, right? There's a district and there's a capital. So that capital people are loyal to me. So in North Korea, again. We have three different main classes. We are a homogeneous country. We speak the same language, but regime divided us into three classes. First class is royal. They call them tomato. You are red outside and inside. That means you are true communist. Middle class is called apple. You are red outside, but inside is white, so you're questionable. You need a surveillance. Remaining is completely schooled people. You're great. You're not even red outside. So they call them hostile class. So three of these classes, they divide them into another 51 classes. In the same people in the socialist paradise, where everybody should be equal. And based on that classes, they decide who gets fed, who dies in from starvation. So we were living in a countryside. We were not in capital. And that's why... In the 90s, the massive famine began and millions of people died because of that.
0: Millions of people died from starvation?
1: Yeah, more than 3.5 million from 1995 to 1998
0: when I was a toddler. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I assume you've heard about the, the starvation in the Ukraine in the 1930s. It's a similar it's
1: man-made yeah. thing. Man-made
0: yeah. killing yeah. via starvation. But the idea that this happened in the lifetime of those of us sitting here in North Korea uh, is, is horrifying. So what did your father do to augment uh, what you had?
1: So he decided to trade. And this is why I learned later why all these communist countries stopped the market. Because if the individuals start trading for themselves, they really learn to think for themselves.
0: This is, a, this is a big big piece of information. When I read that, I thought that's an amazing insight. When people start trading, when there's some kind of a market, it teaches people to think for themselves. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the regime is against any trading kind of market. market or trading.
1: And then, so my father went to black market. And you say black market it seems like selling drugs and weaponry. Black market in North Korea means you're selling dried fish, clocks and batteries and clothes. That's how he got into, you know, selling dried fish and selling rice in the black market. That's how he fed me.
0: That's how he fed you <laughs> and your sister and mm-hmm. your mother. Yeah. Um, and how, did, did the regime look the other way a little bit because they knew that we can't feed these people?
1: The regime did not look away, but the officials did. So, officials are unbelievably corrupt. North Korea is the most corrupt country. And if you go to any socialist country, it's so corrupt, right? Even Soviet Union, they had to bribe the doctor to see the doctor. In North Korea, like that, if you don't bribe the doctor, they would refuse to operate on you. They would not save you, even if you die. So, like, the officials were receiving bribes from my father, and letting him do the business.
0: So you, you, you talk about this, that it's a, it's a system of tremendous corruption. I mean, yeah. it's hard for us to imagine. And, but your father was in a, in a very limited way, thriving for a little while. Yeah. How old were you when, when things were going relatively well? I say relatively because they weren't going well, but compared yeah. to others in North Korea?
1: When I was six, seven, we were, we, I ate three times a day. And for North Korean standard, that's like out of this world. I did not eat steak or like meat, but I ate some grains and kimchi. Do you guys know what kimchi is? Yeah. So I ate kimchi and some grains three times a day, and that was very really luxurious.
0: And what happened to your father that this was, that this period ended? It was no longer possible for him to do that.
1: When I was almost turning nine, he got caught, and he was at the time selling precious metals, like nickel, copper, and he got caught, and he was sent to labor camp for that.
0: That was a very daring thing for him to do, and you describe it in the Hmm. book, and I I do mean it, folks, when I say that the the first book that Yeonmi wrote, In Order to Live, this is like mandatory. I'm begging every one of you to read this book. Because you need to know the details. You'll you'll see when you read it. Um, you describe that things were so desperate that your father didn't care that he's doing something tremendously risky. He knew he can lose his life yeah. when he goes to this next level. Because first he's trading simple things, but then um, metal. he has yeah. to he he and. I think, do you say that he used the, the smuggling became very dangerous. He was using the, uh, the railroad car of from the dear car. leader. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So in North Korea train, like every train is funny. One country to one country in, take, in South Korea it takes two hours from one end to end. North Korea takes more than a month because trains, like we don't have electricity, a lot of times people have to push the train to move. Right? <laughs> so literally, it's like, I remember my job was going to a train station to find out when train arrives. And I had to walk the train station for like an hour. And here the train comes in a week and not, never comes in, in a week. So in that, whenever that train runs, one cargo has dedicated to carry the things for the dictator in Pyongyang. So that cargo is like, literally in North Korea, they draft young girls called the pleasure squad. And there are three groups of pleasure squad. One is a satisfactory group, where you perform sex act to the dictator and the officials. Second is a happiness group, where you uh, give them massage and acupuncture. Third one is a dance and singing. But below that three group is like, subgroup is not quite pretty enough, but you're still good looking. These girls are recruiting these different resorts around the country, more than 2,000 of them. Kim Jong-un has his own private resorts. They wait their entire year, raise pigs and porks, and hand massage these animals. because so anything that feeds to dictator has to be special, most like care, you know. Thing. They have to like water plants different way. So this cargo she was taking those precious things to the dictator and my father used that cargo to carry the matters. And that's why it was so dangerous.
0: So it's a simple issue of corruption. If you bribe the right people, you're okay.
1: Kind of. Kind a of. certain limit. Yeah. Certain limit.
0: But that's the that, that's the magic, was yeah. that if you if you can bribe the right people. Um yeah. And so eventually your father was caught. Yeah. And what happened?
1: Oh, I mean, North Korea, we don't have a word for lawyer. We don't know what that is. You
0: don't have a word for lawyer?
1: Yeah, I never knew. You don't like defend How do you defend anybody? Like, you know, so he got arrested. And I heard he went through an unbelievable amount of torture and then sent to prison camp. So I. There was no trial or like anything like that. In North Korea, we don't have internet. We, we, we don't write emails, we don't write letters, nothing works. So I just didn't ever get to see him afterwards for a long time.
0: When you were 11, you started trading yourself. Yeah. You started, you entered business as an 11 year old. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: <laughs> so my very first attempt to survive in North Korea was, Driving the guard and the orchard, I gave in the him orchard. the yeah North Korean moonlight, this very murky drink, you know, alcohol that you make, and then I bought it and gave it to the orchard guard, and then I bought the persimmons, I carried them and then sold them in the black market.
0: So you bribed the orchard guard with alcohol, yeah. but you had to use money to get the alcohol. My mom
1: lent me your uh, money. <laughs>
0: To, to pay for the alcohol, to bribe the orchard guard yeah. to get a few persimmons to sell.
1: Yeah, but my mom shut down the business because me had to walk the orchard, right? And it, miles, miles, takes like six hours to walk there and come back six hours. So my shoes would run off. My mom is like, the money you're making not even enough for me to buy you a pair of shoes. So she eventually shut down the business. <laughs>
0: what, when did your... So you have one older sister. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember the details. Did she escape first? She did. How old were you when she left?
1: She escaped, actually, now it's March 30th today, right? My sister escaped March 26, 2007. I escaped four days, later, four days later, March 30th today, actually, 2007. Four
0: days later? Yeah. So how old were you?
1: I was 13 years old.
0: 13. So when somebody says they escape from North Korea, you did and you didn't in the sense that what happened to you after that, you were still enslaved. We'll get into that. But you you were 13. And how is it possible? Because most people would think when you describe the situation that it's not possible to get out. So how was it possible Mm. to escape in 2007?
1: So, this is really so weird for me right now, sitting in this room, along with all these many American bastards.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a one word for me at <laughs> school. And like you said, you know, escape is not a concept for North Korean. And so in North Korea, we don't have internet, so we don't know what the world looked like. I did not even know how many countries in the world existed. <laughs> and they did not even tell me that I was Asian. They told me I was Kim il race, my dictator it's race. It's
0: his own race.
1: Yeah, and North Korea has a different calendar. Our calendar begins where Kim il was born, not when Jesus Christ was born. So, of course, I had no idea how the world existed.
0: I want to I, I interrupt you just to... Because mm-hmm. to, to, there, there's so many interesting things. Have I mentioned you need to buy this book? <laughs> yeah, and you need to read it. But in this book, there's so many extraordinary details we'll never get to tonight, but this is amazing. You said, in second grade, we were taught simple math, but not the way it's taught in other countries. Even in North Korea, even arithmetic is a propaganda tool. A typical problem would go like this. If you kill one American bastard and your comrade kills two, how many dead American bastards do you have? (laughs) I mean, this is amazing. It's funny and horrifying. Yeah. That even to teach little children basic math, they're giving you propaganda about the West. Yeah. But this infused the whole, your whole life. There's There's no aspect of your life as you describe it that was not like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, even the songs that I sang in North Korea, people literally get executed for watching a wrong movie. You get executed, you know. Like one of the public executions I saw was a, my friend mother uh, watched Hollywood movie and she shared it with her friend. And that was a crime in North Korea, you get executed for.
0: She was publicly executed. Yeah. And you saw the execution.
1: Mm-hmm. And with my friend, with my friend, that was her mother. They sit the children first row because we are the shortest. So they put the infants first and the little kids. And then as your height goes, you go backwards. That's how it means mandatory every human being needs to attend the public execution in North Korea. And now after Kim Jong-un, he decided that we don't even deserve bullets. Bullets are too precious to use on his own people. So he used something called hot boxing in a hot metal box. He put the human beings in it, and let them dry to death.
0: Yeah, there are things that you say that's in, this, in the end part of the second book that um, they're, they're almost impossible to talk about what, they, um, what people suffered and I think You know, when I I talk about Socrates in the city, we ask questions. And one question is, is there such a thing as evil? Because there are many people who don't believe in that idea. But when you read what is done by some people to other people, there's no other category except to say this is evil. This is evil. And it's hard to say why we know that. But we know that. It's so horrifying that it goes beyond error, mistake, <laughs> bad. There's yeah. something deeply evil. Uh, and you describe in the end of the second book some of these things, some of these executions, which I don't really want to go into right now because it's, uh, it's so horrifying. But what does it do to you to live with that? I mean, you're saying you're a little girl and you're forced to attend the execution of your friend's mother. Mm. How are you supposed to behave in a moment like this?
1: So, I mean, the fact that you can be de- depressed or traumatized, to me, that's a definition of privilege. Like in North Korea, you don't have the word depression because how can you possibly depress in a socialist paradise? It doesn't give you the word depression to describe that. And now I came to America, I was writing that first book my agent in New York was asking me, you mean, you need to go see a therapist. You're traumatized. You have PTSD." And I was like, "What's a trauma, right?" <laughs> and she's like, "Here's the thing Americans do, you know, go talk to somebody." I asked her like, "How much is like?" She normally charges 700 bucks, but it's like 250 for you, special rate. I was like, you "No, know, thank you." <laughs> 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 but <I'm, laughs> you survive in a country. Humans are very resilient. There's so many people go through, you know, even seeing their own mother getting executed and come out of very strong. So I think for me, it was not even a challenge for me. And in North Korea, like, that was a normal, like seeing dead bodies, like looking at a tree. Nobody told me that I was like, that was an abnormal. I just only learned here that that's abnormal.
0: So, um, so your father is, is taken away, you don't know where he is. At 13, your sister somehow decides to get out now. So how, how did she get out and how did you get out
1: So into China? We want to escape together. And luckily we are living in the border town of North Korea. And if you see North Korea and picture satellite pictures, it's like the darkest place in the world. I keep telling my friends who are very passionate about climate change. Like, go to North Korea, we have Earth Day every day. (laughs) We don't have (laughs) non-impact whatsoever. (laughs) We eat insects, you know, we don't butcher cows. (laughs) It's a paradise. (laughs) But (laughs) because of the darkness, I was able to see the lights coming from China at night. And that's when we got some clue. Maybe if we go to China, we might find a bowl of rice. So when I was escaping from North Korea, I did not escape for freedom. I was escaping for a bottle of rice. You, um,
0: you your, your sister went, you said a few days before yeah, you and your mother. because
1: I got sick, so I couldn't go, so she left Yeah, you,
0: you, you were misdiagnosed. Yeah. Uh, because socialist medicine is not perfect, as we've been told. <laughs> And you were misdiagnosed. You did not have appendicitis, but you were treated for appendicitis.
1: So, so I was very stomach ached, so my mom took to the hospital in North Korea. L- literally nurse inject every patient with one needle.
0: With the same needle? Same
1: needle to every patient. They use beer bottles as a drug. You don't have x-ray machines. We don't have any of that. And then uh, doctors rubbed my belly and he said, she might have appendicitis. So they opened me up without any anesthesia that day. It's a common in her skin, they like cut your bones out like that. And then when they opened it, it was just malnutrition and infection. So doctor still decided, he was embarrassed, right? Take my appendix out.
0: He was embarrassed? Yeah. So he figured we opened her up, might as well take out my the appendix. My perfectly
1: fine organ taken out of me, so I'm yeah. gonna sue him. And I got back to yeah. her skirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you were, Recovering from this, your sister escapes, and then this is when you insist to your mother, we must go.
1: Oh, no. I got out, and I found a note that my sister left me in a pillowcase. She said, go find this lady. She will help me to come find me in China. So I found a note. I went to find that lady with my mother that morning. And then when we found the lady, she just miraculously said, I can help you to go to China to find your sister and they will have food for you.
0: And they will have food for you. Yeah. Okay, so this is the trick. They are, these are corrupt people. Yeah. And they know mm. that they can sell you into sexual slavery mm. and so they use the bait of food. Yeah. So you and your mother believe this woman mm-hmm. uh, because your sister obviously went through the same thing. And she said if you, if you, she left you a note that if you go to this woman, she will help you.
1: Yeah. So I think this is where uh, people don't, I think hard to understand, even though as horrific as human trafficking is. To me, I think I talk about in my book that two things I'm most grateful for. One is that I was born in North Korea, one that I escaped. And that means that I was sold. If she didn't sell me, I would not be here, I'd be dead. So uh, she even sold her own daughters because if she didn't sell her own daughters, they would die from starvation in North Korea.
0: So to be clear, the way this works, there's a market for women to be sold because, tell me if I'm wrong, Mm. China aborted so many human beings, most of them girls. So there's a shortage of girls in China. Yeah. So they have opened the idea to a market of women to be sold from North Korea. And th- this is happening and they're allow- the Chinese are allowing this to happen.
1: The government allows this to
0: happen. The Chinese government, of yes. course. Yeah. So that is how you and your mother were sold <laughs> into China.
1: Yeah, so like I said, there are 33 million men in China, 33 million adult men, not even counting young children that growing up. That gap gonna keep going up. You mean
0: you mean the gap? You mean
1: between ratio between men and women? Right. So currently, 33 million men in China cannot find wives. Right. And they gotta find somewhere, so they look for sex slavery from North Korea. And the reason why the regime, Chinese government is helping this, if they catch the North Korean women, and then if they were helping us go to South Korea, we would not be sold there. But they catch us, so we are very vulnerable. So when we human traffickers set us, kill us, take our organs out, we have no place to go.
0: So the Chinese government knows this is happening. Yeah and they're cynically using this. They're, they're they're not interested in helping someone like you or your mother. This is...
1: They're helping Kim Jong-un.
0: They're so, helping the dictator.
1: That's a pact they made. So Kim Jong-un learned that the factors escape like me, speak out, expose the regime, because journalists cannot go to North Korea and just start filming, right? North Korea is a, I mean, it's like it's, hard, it's harder than going to the moon to North Korea right now. We have an easier chance to travel to moon in our lifetime than to visit North Korea as a free people. So, he knows that defectors are threats. threat. So, it's like catching a Jewish person and sending him to Auschwitz, like that. Chinese regime, There's a slave hunters in China. If you report a North Korean defector, you get money by the CCP you get rewarded. So people are looking for defectors. So we have to hide. And only people who are willing to hide us are the traffickers. And being sold actually as a sex slave, slave is not even the worst thing. There are three places that we will end up. One is a organ harvesters. They buy us and take our organs out and discard our body. And second place is a brothers. They put a girl in a room has no even window tiny little room and let her get raped up to 500 times a day and they last less than six months and they die last one is where the village men ship in and buy a girl and rape them rotationally or brothers in the family by them rape them so that's the place we end up and there are right now three hundred thousand of them in china
0: so this is this is china today
1: it's continuing right now during the pandemic, I was so appalled. In Chinese websites, like their Google buy it too. It's like Uber Eats. You order a North Korean girl, just few button, and deliver to your door to get killed and get raped by you. Right now.
0: Um, there are many people in America making a lot of money off of China and doing business with China, and we never hear these stories.
1: Because of that.
0: The because media does not talk about... Yeah. what you've just shared. We Let, know you're not making this up.
1: Last year I was was my first book that you just have was going to be made into a movie by the one of the Hollywood studios producers. And this producer sent me a script. And in the pro- script he said China was my promised land. China was protecting me and gave me a fish. And I called him like what are you talking about? Like this is not what happened. And he said this is the only way we can make a movie about North Korean Hollywood. That's why there are so many movies about Holocaust, but not even one single movie. There genocide of Congo, I mean, Hotel Rwanda, right? Nobody dare to touch North Korean genocide because of Chinese influence in Hollywood and American mainstream.
0: So you were 13 when you made your way to China and your mother, and initially you were not you weren't allowed to say that you were mother and daughter, no. and you were not allowed to say that you're 13 because they wanted to believe you were 18, to buy you to be his wife. So on, in the level of horrors that you've described, this was less bad than many things that could have happened. No, but this they is-
1: say that, but uh, this was the same broker willing to sell to the brothers, the or- harvesters, who gives them the most money.
0: Okay, so, so the broker the who guys. buys you, as his wife,
1: mm-hmm. he was selling to these people, was, was
0: selling other women to organ harvesters, brothers. and to brothels. Yeah. And so you were forced to live with this man.
1: So, I was 13, I was separated from my mom, and I was alone, and there's Han broker, Chinese broker bought me. He was by then like third broker. So we go through the human trafficking ring. Each time we are sold, they make a bigger margin on us. So initially my mother's price was $65. They sold my mom, 21st century. And they sold me just over $200 because I was a child virgin. And that's something precious for these people, these perverted people. And then by this handbroker, he got me and he was very impressed that I was still a virgin. 'Cause normally women don't keep to virginity because they get attacked so many times and luckily I had my mom onto him. So my mom offered herself every single time and they're trying to rape me and she was raped in front of me, inside of me.
0: You you describe that in the book that your mother was raped in front of you and that was the first that was your first experience of any kind of the sexual act was watching your mother being raped. Um, and this happens every time there's a transaction. And so where did you end up eventually?
1: In this, uh, handbrokers, he bought me and then he said, if I become, I was gonna kill myself. You said
0: you were gonna kill yourself. Yeah,
1: I was, as a knife, I was like, I lost my mind. I, I could not live like that. So I was like, end of my life. And he said, if I become his mistress, he was going to help me buy my family back to me. He was going to help me my family. So.
0: And in some way, as, as bad as he was, in some way he was true to that word, to this promise to you. Yeah. Which is an interesting part of the story. I think you say this, that even the worst person has some good. Of course. And, well, you say, of course, some people don't see it that way. I, <laughs> you're correct. It's yeah. fascinating that this person who did great evil, nonetheless did help you yeah. to find your father.
1: And my mom, he and brought you, my mom back from the farmer that he
0: sold. And, and, and rescued your mother from, to, because he said, if you, if you don't kill yourself, I will do this for you.
1: Yeah.
0: So you're, you're reunited with your mother. And how did you see your father again?
1: Uh, he brought my father from North Korea. And by then, my father was extremely sick because of all the torture he got from the prison camp. So he passed away. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember Beijing Olympic in 2008. I remember World was celebrating it. It was like a huge, huge festival. And as a refugee in China, seeing all the signs, like he... He died right before that in 2008, and I couldn't even cry because we could not let people know that somebody died. Somebody would hear us, and he, he was buried. In the middle of the night, I buried him in the mountain, his ashes.
0: The story of your father dying, um, because I'm a father and I have a daughter, it's very... Uh, It's very beautiful, it's very, very moving. Um, And the idea that he somehow gave you hope and courage somehow, your father, to continue.
1: I know, it's like, my second book starts like this, like he said, my father said, um, people (laughs) leave their names when they die in the world and tigers leave their skin. He told me, always make your name long and lasting. Like, what kind of North Korean thinks about that everybody thinks about finding next meal? And then he told me, he told me so many things in life, even in North Korea. In this situation, he told me that I had to become like a lollypop doll. You know, there's a doll, always comes back up no matter how many times you hit it. He said, no matter how many times I've hit you, you have to always come back up and fight back. And I think that's what kept me going in China. Like, I did not know a world like existed. I did not know this day was coming for me. And I still had to be hopeful and that lesson stuck in me.
0: Um, after you left, um, after your father died, you eventually were able to make your way to Mongolia?
1: Yeah, the Desert.
0: That was the real escape.
1: That's That was the one escape for freedom.
0: In other words, when, because when you escaped from North Korea into China, China you escaped food. into slavery, yes. sex slavery. Yeah. Um, how was it that you eventually were able to go from China uh, to Mongolia, which has complicated relationships with different countries, but you knew that if you can get to Mongolia, you're out of China.
1: So here is where I, this man who bought me, he became very, uh, like he was gambling so much, become addicted to that. And then, by some reason, he was letting me go. And even in China, somebody lets you go, where do you go? I was going to restaurants and begged them, like, I can wash dishes, I can work clean. Just give me a place to eat and sleep with my mother. They would not give me that job, to be washing dishes. And then we heard there's a place, something called a camp girl. And so basically they give you a refuge to stay sheltered where you get fed and you have a place to sleep. Instead of that, you need to perform sex acts in front of the cameras.
0: Like a chat room.
1: Chat room, chat girl. And then I was thinking, it's better than getting raped physically, right? And that was the best option I had in China to survive. So I ended up in the chat room with my mother. In this chat room, there's another lady in the other room, and she said, there are some missionaries from South Korea willing to help us and I did not know what word missionary was. And she was like, they're Christians. Like, What's Christian? <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. And we had a call with this pastor over the phone, and he's, we don't know even how to pray. He said, I'm gonna pray for your protection. At the end of, you have to just say amen. And I was laughing. It's like somebody's praying to something, nothing, right? And then he said, if you wanna be rescued, that you gotta come to this shelter at home. We're gonna teach you about Bible. So we left the chat room and then we joined him in Qingdao, China. We joined them with eight other people in our team, and I was studying Bible for several months. And then it's our price to be rescued by missionaries was believing in God. And it's funny. It's, a, it's like I was. I thought it was unbelievable. Like, what do you mean? Like, there's God and Jesus, and they said my uh, de facto lady, don't worry about it. Think about God as a Kim Il-sung. He loved us so much, he was giving us his son, Kim Jong-il. His body dies, but his spirit is with us forever. Because North Korea copied Christianity, even 10 amendments, right? So everything was the same theory, just names were switched. But... I mean, by then, I was so desperate to survive.
0: Obviously, you will say anything. Of course,
1: I would believe in like, a rock if somebody asked. If you believe in rock, I'm yeah. going to rescue yeah. I would believe in a rock. So I became a Christian. And then they said, if you want to escape China, you have to walk across frozen Gobi Desert.
0: You have to walk across the frozen Gobi Desert. In
1: minus 40 degrees. In 2009, in February, when I was 15 years old. And that needed a miracle. That's why they needed to pray. The chance of surviving was not even 1% there. So they said, only God can rescue guys, not even us. We need a miracle. So we prayed, we prayed, and that's how I survived the desert.
0: So you, you got through the Gobi Desert yeah. to Mongolia. Yeah. And how did you end up in South Korea?
1: So I didn't die, and then...
0: You didn't die. I
1: didn't die, luckily.
0: Yeah. A lot we, were of all, died. we were all guessing that. You didn't have yeah.
1: to... <laughs> oh, I crossed, like, 16 wire fences in the desert. Didn't get electrified. And got the Mongolian side, and soldiers captured us. And they contacted South Korean embassy. And a few months later, they sent us to South Korea as refugees. So that's how I became free.
0: It's extraordinary. There's so, there's so much we're, we're leaving out, of course, because of time. So you find yourself now with your mother yeah. in South Korea. Mm-hmm. You are free. Yeah. Um, you still had not found out what happened to your sister.
1: Right. I still lost her right, at the moment.
0: How did you find your sister?
1: When I was... Uh, se- seven years later, when I was 20 years old, uh, she came to South Korea, not knowing that we made it to South Korea. And in South Korea, when we enter the country, they have to check our information and make sure that we are North Koreans and we are not spies. Very, very serious integration they do. You know. So it matched with our names and my sister's names, so they found us like that, the data center.
0: Did you ever worry when you were in South Korea that uh, Kim Jong-un would have people in South Korea to kidnap you, to bring you back?
1: Now you do, because uh, when I was in South Korea, I was informed by NIS, South Korean National Intelligence. Uh, I've been on his killing list for a while. And you many. were on
0: his killing list yes. for a while. Yeah, <laughs> good for you.
1: <laughs> exactly, one achievement. He hates me. <laughs> Kim Jong Un knows me, and he's been trying to kill me for some time, but that's why I have to avoid countries like Malaysia, countries that, like in the South America, that used to hire hitmen. I mean, they killed Kim Jong nam in Malaysia by hiring hitmen. So I cannot travel many countries. They
0: killed who? Sorry? His
1: half brother. In oh, half-brother. yeah, in the, yeah, right. at the airport. So, uh, but I don't know if America like protect me. I got canceled by FBI last year, and then South Korea. Intelli- exactly, thank you. South Korean intelligence said, "You should reach out to the FBI. They should protect you now. You're American." Yeah, I became American last year.
0: So, Congratulations. Thank
1: you. <laughs> thank you so much. Then ask your intelligence. Was saying, "Now, now, you're their responsibility. I'm sure FBI gonna protect you." Sure. So when they reached me to come give a speech, I was excited. as was like, finally they're gonna protect me. And then two days before my speech, the head of diversity calls me.
0: The head of diversity yes. at the FBI. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then great. she says like we have to answer your speech. Yeah. And why? You're
0: not diverse enough?
1: And then she's like, yeah, because of your political opinions. And this is a funny. And that time I became American and in my American interview, citizenship interview, my interviewer asking me this exact question have you ever persecuted anybody for their political opinion? You know, if you said yes, you cannot become American.
0: <laughs> but you but you can become FBI.
1: Exactly. Because <laughs> people should be stripped of American yeah. citizens right well, now.
0: We know the FBI is not as American as it used to be. <laughs> we don't want to say anything controversial. But, you know, <laughs> those people can go to hell.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so you you're in South Korea. Yeah. How did you end up? Did you ever want to come to the United States? I mean, what's fascinating about your story, and again, I'm talking about the the first book mainly, is how you discover things. I mean, you you were so totally brainwashed that you keep having these revelations of things as time passes, that what you believed was not true. And Mm -hmm. you didn't even know of the existence of the outside world. You didn't know about the existence of the United States. When did it occur to you, maybe, that you would visit the United States?
1: Uh, through Christians, okay? <laughs> Something about Christians keep calling me to America, you know, <laughs> the promised land calls me. Uh, the, there was a Tyler, Texas. Do you guys know Youth With a Mission?
0: Youth With a Mission, so I a YWAM. DTS.
1: Yes, I did a YMDTS program. Yeah. Yeah. And they were in Tyler, Texas. Yeah. So until that point, I still was very afraid of America. I mean, up until my life, Americans, all I saw was like posters. We were like big nose, green eyes, cold blooded reptiles. I had no idea. I mean,
0: again, this is the propaganda in North Korea was so strong that even all these years later, you still had it in your mind that Americans are these monsters.
1: Yeah, I did. And I landed at, uh, there's a layover in Houston to Tyler at the airport. And then I just got out of airplane, so fake, And there's this guy in a hoodie, eating chips, and was, was it
0: a senator? No.
1: <laughs>
0: because I, I'll be honest with you, I'm very scared of him also. Yeah. He's very frightening, very Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so you, you're, even though you're in Houston, You're still afraid of Americans. You're still believing some level of what has been taught to you by the propaganda.
1: So after living through something like that, I remember in South Korea, they were saying everything, everything you believed in North Korea was a lie. And I was thinking, so if everything was a lie, how do I know what you're telling me is not a lie? Right. It's like, it's very hard. You know, when you go through something like that, you really lose faith in humanity. You don't know how to trust again. And I found the trust through books. Books have saved me, saved me. It has been my refugee. It has been everything to me. And reading George Orwell's Animal Farm, that's when I finally understood what happened to my people, what happened to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, through those books, it was a gradual change.
0: So you come to Tyler, Texas with YWAM. Yes. And uh, you, did you consider yourself a Christian, or you're just going, for the, going along for the ride? I mean, they're nice people.
1: So initially for me, going to YWAM was, I was a little bit, had an instance with a pastor in South Korea, in China. Yeah. And I told the pastor about things that I had to do to survive in China. But being in a chat room, all of that. He said I was dirty, I was sinner. Yeah. And now I'm thinking about it, like Christian is saying everybody's sinner, right? He didn't really, I guess, didn't mean that what I did was sinner. Okay. But I don't know, he just said what I did was very, very dirty. I can never be white again.
0: It was condemning. Yeah, yeah. so
1: I think that's when I heard, world is never gonna forgive me if I tell them what I did to survive. Yeah. And then I became very resentful of that. But then I still thought, like, I owe it to them. I need to at least know God or Bible properly because they made me promise that if we rescue you, you really have to give a chance for God. And I said, I promise, yes. So I came for that to learning about Bible again.
0: So that's why you went to Tyler, Texas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how did you decide to stay in America?
1: I didn't, I went back to South Korea again. I, I did a DTS, and I went to South America uh, for the program, and then went back to America, South Korea. Yeah. And then uh, I had a speech to give in uh, Dublin, Ireland, and that speech gone really viral.
0: Oh, that's what—that's right. Okay. So I was
1: invited to write a book in New York. That's how I came back here in 2014. In
0: 2014. Yeah. And so, how, and how long have you been in the United States? Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So you went to Columbia University. That's what you write about, to some extent, in, the, in your new book, um, While Time Remains. And what you describe when you achieve this dream, mm-hmm. um, something similar happened to me in the 1980s at Yale, right? It's the, it's the dream of immigrants mm-hmm. to go to a place like this. This is success. Mm-hmm when you describe what you encountered, even your first week. First day. Your first day. <laughs> it sounds made up. It sounds like this is made up. But I know it's not made up. I know yeah. it's true. Talk about what you encountered uh, in, at, at Columbia and elsewhere.
1: Where do I begin? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I mean, my classmates, perfectly lovely people. They're in there like, Lululemon, $100, like, yoga pants. Or they're, like, green juice detox. I mean, for me, in North Korea, I ate plants to survive with my bunny. Now they eat, like, salad, too skinny. I was really offended in America. People do that, right? I did not know the problem in America is having too much food. And they were telling me they're oppressed, like Colombia.
0: The women wearing the hundred-dollar Lululemon pants. It's like more
1: expensive. Than my mom's. P- and like the ten-dollar
0: green drinks were saying they're oppressed.
1: Yeah. And I was asking them, "Why are you oppressed?" So in Colombia, every class before class, we have to introduce ourselves. Not about who you are, your name, or your major. It's about first thing you have to do is your pronoun.
0: Your pronoun. And what year was this?
1: 2016.
0: Holy cow. Wow.
1: <laughs> but. I learned English by watching Friends <laughs> <laughs> in 2014, two years prior. In France, they don't have they as a pronoun, they yeah. don't have a Z, X, Y, like yeah. none of that pronouns exist. So I go to Colombia and then I uh, name they as he, as a biological male, And in tears, how I make them feel threatened. And then my professors were saying, uh, who likes to read? I mean, give me examples, you need to be woke. And I thought, like, my English was not good. I thought, I was, I'm awake. I'm <laughs> awake, right? Like, why is she saying I need to be woke? And she's like, let me give you an example of being woke. Like, who likes to read? Jane Austen. And I love reading. And Jane Austen, I, I learned so much about being a human through her book. So I like raised my hand. And she said, Jane Austen was like, You know, living in an era of white colonialism and white supremacy, by reading her work, you convey the message that only white men are capable of reasonable thinking. And that's how you oppress minority people. This is example- By reading
0: Jane Austen. Jane Austen. You oppress people by reading Jane Austen.
1: And then we have a consent orientation. Everybody needs to take at Columbia when you begin the college. And as a rape survivor, you appreciate that they teach you how to get a consent from your sex partner. And then after these two long hours of lecture, they give us examples. So you and I going to Colombia together. You, go, you and I go out drink at the bar. We, both of us had a beer. We had to consensually like, agree to make love, and the next day, wake up. I feel I think it was under the influence I made a mistake. Now I can call that rape because I was under influence. But what about the guy? He was a too. And I was thinking, this is an insult to rape survivors. This is not what rape is. They are redefining the word oppression. They're redefining the word rape and racism. And they say math is racist, it's made up. And I was thinking, this is what my teacher taught me as younger in North Korea. She said, what's one plus one? And I said, two, my, dear, my teacher said, wrong. My dear leader, when he was a kid, discovered that if you add one drop of water to another drop of water, what does it become? It becomes a bigger one. It does not become two. That's how math is made up by white men to control the minorities. Colombia, they were saying the exact same thing.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that already in 2016, in your freshman year, these things were being pushed so aggressively?
1: Yeah.
0: Because we know they, they're out there, but the idea that you have had your experience and you come to this place and they are shoving this down your throat, these ideas, very aggressively, I mean, it's amazing to me. How did you survive four years at Columbia?
1: <laughs> it was last year, my senior seminar. I- I was studying economics and then human rights and political science. And then, this is a human rights course, right? And they were telling me, I mean, they're redefining the word human rights again. You know, human rights means free healthcare, free education, I mean, you're so entitled to everything, so everything should be free for you. And I mean, the people who are actually fighting for human rights, it's a different thing. But she asked me, she's saying like, you know, uh, there's no difference between men and women. And I said like, I can never be a man. I, or so by then I gave a birth. I was a mother. Like I know what my body can do and my guy's body cannot do. And she said, who told you that you cannot be a man? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I said, okay, somebody brainwashed you. You are brainwashed. Wow. And they would just shut me down like that. So I learned. And then they said, Colombia is a safe space. Not about physical safety, it's about emotional safety. And before the classes, professor send this trigger warning emails. Don't come to class and don't do the reading. And if it triggers you in any way, don't even tell me why. So you don't need to go to class, you need to do the reading. Then why on earth are you in college?
0: To get that fake degree. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's our fake degree now.
0: It's, ex- it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's been bad for a long time, but it's obviously gotten so bad that to hear you say these things. Uh, so that's a main reason that you wrote the new book, uh, Wild Time Remains, with a foreword by Jordan Peterson, um, because you're convinced that similar things that you experienced in this nation, a brainwashed cult in North Korea, have come here mm-hmm. and you're it speaking is. about it.
1: Yeah, I think the reason I write all my book was living through a pandemic especially. Until then, my agent was protecting me, you know. Let's still try to reach out the liberals, you know. They were like, I'm sure they're going to do something about China. I met Jack Bezos. <laughs> I flew in the same private jail with Harvey Weinstein right before the Me Too. And talking to these people, they say they care about Black Lives Matter. They care about the racism and they wanna end the slavery. I talked to them in person. They say, I, I'm sorry what you went through, but don't even tell people that you know me. They say that's how cowardly these American elites are. And then living through the pandemic, I was living in Chicago. My son, who was like two, learning to walk even, they would put him on the like, mask up here eight hours a day. They are opening a strip club next door. And then I go to park, they open the dog parks. But as a child mother, I cannot take him to the playground. Like, actually animals have more rights from the pandemic than my son had, my child had. And now one day I got robbed in Chicago in the middle of the day.
0: This is... Um... You, you have to tell this story because <laughs> so, this, is, um, this is unbelievable. So you were briefly living in Chicago.
1: For three years, yeah. Please. You have
0: your son with you? Yeah. Okay.
1: I was walking the Michigan Avenue in the afternoon. During the day, uh, some few black women come, pushed me and punched me and took my wallet away. But that's okay. I mean, anybody, the people raped me were Asians. I mean, it's not about race thing here, right? Anybody can be anything. It's not a race. They all just happen to be a black woman. It's fine. But what happened was that the crowd, what people did on the street that day. I pulled my phone out trying to call the police for help. I was a young mother being punched by these people in front of my son. These people circled me, On people on the street, saying the person' color don't make them a, like a thief. You're a racist. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to call the cop?
0: Why are you calling the cop on the women who did this?
1: Punching me and taking my wallet away.
0: Chicagoans came to you and said, you are a racist for making this phone call.
1: Yeah, so, and then they, almost a circus, I couldn't do anything, and then they let them run away from me. And that's when I was like, in something like the madness of crowd. It's not just Colombia going crazy. This country collectively going crazy now. I mean, like, I, even North Korea is not this is crazy. China even is not crazy. They're a bad, horrible regime. But common sense is still there. You help part the victim, not the criminal. It's like in North Korea, like how America works financially. Right now, so people divided based on their skin color. They call my son, who is half North Korean, half American, he's half white. A privileged child because it's a half-wife. And because your skin color, and it's like, who chooses their ancestors? Like, you cannot punish people for something they did not choose. That's why racism is bad, right? You punish for something like skin color. And now we are doing that racism against white people. And they told me that I cannot possibly understand oppression because I'm a white passing person. So, A a,
0: white passing person?
1: So now they say Asians are whites. There's no difference between Asian and whites. And I completely eliminated from that topic. So I was thinking, like in North Korea, we were divided based on what our ancestors did. Like if my great grandfather was a capitalist and landowner, they say your blood is tainted. Your genetics is oppressive. And now they say whites being white, you're oppressive to other people and the exact same tactic and the obsession on what we can say, what we cannot say, like North Korea. In North Korea, we get executed. In America, if you say the wrong thing, you lose your job, you lose your character and dignity. Your livelihood is ruined. So of course, you are not North Korea, but you're getting there. So at some point, you need to turn back.
0: Well, you, you continue to speak out. And that's why I was so thrilled to have you, to read, to read your books, to have you as our guest here because you, uh, you give other people hope because you will not be quiet. You continue yeah. to speak and, and listen, uh, as bad as Columbia is,
1: <laughs>
0: as bad as downtown Chicago is, most of America is not that crazy. And there are many, many people around the world and certainly around this country that are grateful for voices that are speaking the truth because they understand that a man can't become a woman and men (laughs) cannot give birth. And they understand these things. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a time when simply declaring them is suddenly considered a brave act, which of course is ridiculous. But um, you do seem still to have hope, otherwise you wouldn't be talking about these things. Why do you have hope? Why do you talk about these things?
1: So uh, when I was escaping from North Korea, at least it was, I, I had a place to escape to. America, right? I think it's harder for Americans to imagine this. Just imagine the world without America. It's a dark place. This country is a hope for humanity. It's not because I'm American saying this, as an outsider coming from that country, those countries, the world will look up to America, not because this country is just wealthy and like that. The value this country stands for, this dedication to protect individual dignity and freedom. That's very rare, because if we're the smallest minority, that is individual. And there are so many countries dedicated to protect yourself, the collective, and you don't matter if you're individual. When North Korea came out, attacked me, they said she was individualistic when she was a kid. For North Korea, that is the worst criticism you can give to somebody. That's how being individualistic is the worst thing. And this country made a constitution out of that to protect individual liberty. So, I mean, like, if we lose America, where do we go? Are we gonna escape to North Korea? Are we skipping to the moon? I mean, that's the kind of the only option right now. So, I think that's why we have to protect this country. I have no option other than fighting for it. And I'm not gonna run this time. Like when I was reading uh, Animal Farm, Until that point, I hated the dictator. I was thinking, how horrible these evil guys are, enslaving people, doing this to these people. But then when you read a book, it's it's a process. Like when I was born in North Korea, I did not even know that I was oppressed. Like, how do you fight to be free if you don't know you're a slave? And North Korea came that point, so when it came to me, I couldn't even fight because I didn't even know that was an option. My grandmother knew, though. They knew the time before Kim Il-sung. They knew the time before Communist Revolution. Because they wanted, they were scared, they didn't speak out. We came that far. So while we know this is wrong, I think this is a time to push back.
0: Yeah. We are um, basically out of time. Uh, fortunately, I have a radio show, <laughs> and I get to talk to you more. Have you? Um, and but we are so grateful to you, you um, and me, for 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 being here. I want to tell everyone that um, I, I really do mean it. Um, you will be blessed. Uh, if you read these books. The reason I say read the first book first um, is because it sets up what Mi says in the second book, which is very powerful. Some of the stories that you tell mi in the new book are hilarious. <laughs> because the idea of you earnestly speaking to people like Hillary Clinton personally, uh, Harvey Weinstein personally and other people and believing that they will help you and then finding out that they're not exactly making that their first priority. There's something tragic and very funny in these encounters that you you have uh, in in this book. So it's extraordinary you were able to have these experiences and then to tell the world about what the cultural elites actually think about victims of rape uh, and oppression around the world. How about another round of applause for one of my favorite people, Young Mee Park.